sorry, we need to pause for a sec. Henry, I'm recording something. You can say hi to Matt. Hi, Henry. Do you want to say anything on the podcast? I'm watching something so boring. Okay, tell Dylan to change the channel then. Okay, that's good on the podcast. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Dr. Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo, and I am pleased to be co-hosting with Dr. Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health. Hi, Matt. How you doing, Haley? I'm good. So this is our very last episode of the season. It's hard to believe we've been doing this podcast for a year now. And in honor of our last episode, I'm broadcasting from my bedroom because we are still in a pandemic a year later. And I think we have some important things to talk about today. Yeah, it's been a strange year. I never thought that we would be launching a podcast in a pandemic. You said you're broadcasting in your bedroom in honor of the pandemic. I've never really left my bedroom. I pretty <laughs> much, I, I say that jokingly, but I mean, from a work standpoint, I have been here. I've probably been to my office five times over the past year total. Total. And several okay. of those were on the weekend just because I didn't want to pay for parking. <laughs> It's those things that we're eventually going to have to go back to, like wearing real pants and paying for parking. I mean, I look forward to those days, but I also dread those days. It's a very weird feeling. I don't look forward to wearing real pants. So here's what I don't totally get why this happened. But I have gone from showing up every day to work in standard work clothes, nothing special. I'm not a particularly dressed up kind of person, but I, I don't wear jeans to the office. But now, for whatever reason... I am perfectly comfortable getting on a call where my dean or my department chair is there with video wearing a t-shirt or sweatshirt and I feel no shame in that whatsoever. Oh yeah, I mean, I I have two comments on that. Firstly, I think that's everyone. I think we've all forgotten how to dress ourselves professionally or does it even matter? It it doesn't matter. You're still Matt Fox with brilliant ideas, you know, even though you're wearing a t-shirt and a sweatshirt. No, that is for sure. Sure. Well, not minus the brilliant ideas, but that is for sure true that we're all the same people. But why did I feel compelled to dress up when I was in the office? But I'm perfectly happy to be on a video wearing clothes that I would wear to go play basketball in a meeting now. Yeah, I mean, it's a good it's a good question. I, I like the shift. I do not look forward to ever going back. Maybe we never have to go back. I mean, for me, there's something fancy about a black V-neck T-shirt. It looks like, is it a work shirt? Is it a T-shirt? Who knows? It's a black v-neck. And so I hope that I can continue to wear t-shirts for the rest of my work career and be perfectly happy. Okay, so while while we're on the subject of clothing, you touched a, a, a subject that is near and dear to a argument that we have in my household. Is it ever acceptable for an adult to wear pajamas on an airplane? Pajamas like patterned flannel pajama pants? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no. Even even on a 16-hour overnight flight to South Africa? No, no. I think Never. the answer is no. No, because sweatpants are just as easy to put on, but slightly more socially acceptable. I, you know, I basically only fly in sweatpants, you know, so I, for some reason, those are one degree above flannel patterned pajamas. I don't understand how you can say in 
with one breath that it's we've now transitioned into wear sweatshirt and sweatpants to work it's fine for my work calls but i can't wear pajamas on a plane i don't get it it's like the last socially acceptable holdout maybe not the last but it's one of the last socially acceptable holdouts and where do you fall on on bare feet on a plane? Because I have a long standing disagreement with Rich Macklow's on this one. I just gagged. I just gagged. I, I just. I can't. Absolutely not. Under no circumstance should you ever be barefoot on an airplane. Okay. What about just socks? I could do socks if I changed my socks after. Hmm. I I tell Rich that I am a bare feet on a plane kind of guy, but I'm really not actually. But I am a socks kind of guy in a plane. Yeah, I, as long as you don't have smelly feet, I think it's it's acceptable. I, I can't confirm or deny whether or not I have. <laughs> okay, so that is not, in fact, what we are here to talk about with our last episode. No, not at all here to talk about. Today, we are going to be talking about some of the lessons learned uh, in the past year of pandemic living, pandemic life, not our clothing choices, not how much we wish uh, we could all be traveling, but from an epidemic epidemiology and public health perspective, this pandemic has brought to the forefront some issues that we as epidemiologists have always learned about and thought about, but these issues are now in the public sphere. They are issues that I've talked to my grandmother about. I spoke to my dad last night on the phone about this Johnson and Johnson issue and he said, you know, it's six it's six people who have blood clots, Haley's, but it's all about the denominator. And I was like, Dad, Ooh. it is all about the denominator. You you could basically skip my epi course because that's all I wish the students could get out, the importance of the denominator. And so these are conversations that I never would have imagined having with my family members and now everyone's talking about it. So we thought as, as a nice way to, to wrap up our final year of this pandemic that we started during, or sorry, this podcast we started during a pandemic, we could talk about some of those uh, related issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, in thinking about this, it just it occurred to me that there have been so many potential lessons that one could learn from some mistakes that have gone on during the pandemic in terms of you know the way that science has functioned, you know, but also I think important to reflect the way that depending on how you define science, certain aspects of science have been phenomenal during the pandemic. I mean, the fact that we have a, a vaccine in a record time period is, is really astounding and is credit to the scientific enterprise and the way that government and, and science work together. I think there's a lot to criticize, but I think there is also some positives to take home from that. And so I've just been thinking a lot lately about some of the lessons that become very obvious when, we'll just say epidemiology, is put under a microscope in the way that it has been over the past year in the way that when timelines are moved to happen so quickly. So I heard a statistic the other day that there have been more papers published on COVID over the past year than have been published on measles and two other infectious diseases. There's been more published on COVID than there has been in, in all the time that we have been working on measles and, and several other infectious diseases. So that volume of work, there's bound to be good and bad. And there's also that much publications over an incredibly short time period because there's so much pressure to get information out there. 
there's just bound to be a lot of mistakes. So I don't know what, what jumps out to you and where you want to start, but I, it does seem to me there are a lot of, uh, of lessons to be learned. Yeah, so I think something that really uh, has stuck with me as I've been consuming the media and watching TV and, and reading online is how important, I'm not sure important is the right word, but I'll use it, how important preprints have become in our scientific consumption. And for good or for bad, you can do a study, whether it's the best study that's ever been done, or it's really sloppy and needed to be improved. You can write it up as fast as you want, publish it on a preprint server, and it is out in the world. And I don't, I've never seen it quite to this degree before, but journalists are reporting on preprints, you know, as fast as they come out, it gets reported on in the news. And I think it is such a double-edged sword because it's fantastic that some of this research is coming out really quickly and getting to, you know, decision makers and, and the public on one hand. On the other hand, the peer review process is incredibly important. Every single thing I have ever published has been improved in some way by the peer review process. And that is completely missing. Lots of things have also been rejected by the peer review process because they're basically saying you need to go back and work on this some more and you know iron out the kinks and that is totally missing from the preprint process so I think that those are my dichotomous thoughts on the good and the bad of preprints what are your thoughts on how this has gone well, so let me start by just asking you. So as you pointed out, the media are, are picking up on preprints. I had a, I did an interview with a reporter the other day on a on a preprint, and she pointed out that it was preprint; it had not yet been peer reviewed. And I part of me wonders, you know, does that distinction get made by somebody who is just listening to the news? I don't know what your sense on that is. I think that at this point, a year in, many people are used to hearing that as an expression. You know, it's not been peer reviewed. But until you have really lived through that peer review process and taken on the criticism, had to work on how you communicate your results or, you know, whether there's an error or something like that that gets picked up, I don't think you understand what that means for it to be peer reviewed. Not that it's just read by a peer, but it's improved and critically assessed, hopefully, you know, by somebody with expertise. So I I appreciate that it's being mentioned, but I'm not sure the consumers of that media necessarily know what goes on with that process. Yeah, I it's interesting because I feel like I go back and forth on this on how valuable the peer review system actually is. I mean, as you point out, you and I have both had experiences of both having our work reviewed and being peer reviewers. And we've had cases where our work has been either improved by the peer review process or we have you know, not gotten our work into the journal that maybe we wanted it to because it just wasn't up to the standards of the reviewers. But I think we've also both had experiences of either getting back peer reviews that you thought were wildly off base or sometimes just sort of you wonder, did they actually read it? You know, so I, I, there are parts of me that feels like we put too much value into the peer review system. Certainly there's there are limits to the amount that peer reviewers can actually pick up. 
there's limits to the amount of time the peer reviewers had. So it, I don't know. On the other hand, we don't have a better system at the moment. And what I don't want to do on this episode is is get into naming names. But I do think there have been some very famous examples over the course of the pandemic of studies, particularly around estimating the prevalence of COVID infection, you know, also around risk factors and interventions that you do wonder whether there was more harm done than good by having these go to a preprint server first, which got picked up by the press. To give an example, there was a preprint that got released very recently on the UK variant that found that in a hospital-based study, the UK variant did not appear to be more deadly than the variants that had been circulating prior. Contrary to what has been found in larger studies already, which suggests that it is more deadly. Now, the problem with the study as I see it from a, not from a necessarily a validity standpoint, but from an interpretation of the results is they started in the hospital. Right. So best you could say at that point is based on these results, once you end up in the hospital, if the results were all correct, then your risk is roughly the same as everybody else. But if what is actually happening is this variant is leading to more people ending up in the hospital and therefore a greater number of people in absolute terms dying, then you still have a, a variant that is, is leading to more death. And that feels to me like something that would have been discussed, at least discussed in the peer review process by having it go direct to media in the preprint process. I don't know if we end up doing more more harm than good. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly in the probably more harmful camp. The paper that we discussed on our last Journal Club episode uh, in the New England Journal by Dagan and colleagues, I'm not going to get the exact dates right, but it was listed on the front of the paper from submission to it coming out online, uh, published ahead of print. I think it was four to six weeks or something Mm -hmm. incredibly fast. And I think that in this situation where science is evolving so quickly, what we know is changing on a weekly slash monthly basis. As we know, we recorded some of these podcasts in advance and some of what we said sounds dated because we recorded it two months ahead of time. And so I think that what we should move towards in this really acute pandemic phase is striving for at least one peer review really quickly. And so having just science typed up and in the media is not doing anyone any favors, I don't think. Yeah, I suppose it depends, of course, on what the information is and how critical it gets to people. But this didn't feel to me like a case where it was critical that we couldn't have waited a few weeks, though you could make the argument to the opposite, that that news about the virulence of a particular strain could cause people to be more receptive to social distancing and, and mask wearing if that was circulating in their area. So it's a complicated issue. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely a complicated issue. But at its root, we as epidemiologists in particular need to make sure that the information that is getting disseminated is correct, you know, and and that is what we all need to strive for. And one check that we have on making sure that everything is correct is the peer review process. Not that it's perfect. And I'm, I'm with you that there are absolutely flaws in the process. But I think it is incumbent on us as epidemiologists to pick up on some things that other folks wouldn't necessarily pick up on. You know, I think a lot of people would say, oh, it's a hospital-based study. You know, that's just the population that they wanted to study. And there's no selection bias because it's a hospital-based study. And I think our training as epidemiologists has taught us to look for specific things that other people don't look for. I, I will advocate for the importance of peer review continually, even if it has to happen really quickly. 
I think the same thing was coming out earlier. I'm not even I'm not recalling the specifics, but there was something very early on about smoking and uh, COVID outcomes. Smoking being protective. Right. And, and so when you hear something like smoking being protective, a red flag is like jumping up in my head, you know, what is smoking ever protective for in real life? It is almost always in almost every example, an example of collider stratification bias or confounding or, or something that has not gone according to plan in terms of your analysis. And so how could this get out into the news without somebody checking it first, you know? Yeah, I would agree with you. And, you know, there have been lots of examples. So so another area where I think there is lessons to learn, and, and you said we have an obligation to get out good information to people. So there's also been this phenomenon of science by press release or science by, let's call it media report, or science by what I'll, for lack of a better term, call science by case series, where, let me make it more concrete, you're getting reports now, as you pointed out, of blood clots associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. These don't come from studies that are have an appropriate comparison group or we're trying to identify overall what the risk is. This is just there have been reports of these blood clots and it's it's a really small number, but it is leading to a lot of concern. The other one that I would point to is the AstraZeneca release of their data from their trial in which they had a press release that they put out that said their vaccine was, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, it was like X percent effective. And as soon as they released that information, the Data Safety and Monitoring Board then came forward and said, actually, we don't agree with the numbers that you put out. There was a a slightly different efficacy number that you should have reported because the first number was based on interim data and you want the more up-to-date data showed a slightly lower efficacy. And it, it created a serious problem because at the end of the day, the results were not that different. But because the company had chosen to put out the higher result, the D- they put the DSMB in the position of really having to stand up for the truth, which wasn't that different, but it, it made the vaccine manufacturers look bad because it made them look like they were trying to make their vaccine look better than it was, when in fact, my opinion is the results that actually came out were pretty similar to the original results. So I don't know what we do about this, but science by press release does seem to me problematic. Yeah, I mean, and... and... I think in part it speaks to the incredible speed at which this is all progressing and how important it is for all of our lives. Everyone wants this to go away. Everyone wants to go back to whatever normal life looked like for each of us. And similar to the preprint issue, the science by press release issue, I mean, I'm not a pharmacoepi person, but I'm sure that when a new drug comes out, Johnson & Johnson or any company, not just Johnson & Johnson, probably issues a pest a press release and probably it gets filed somewhere and average folks don't pay attention to press releases like that but because everyone is so thirsty for knowledge about this topic you know it's created a problem that probably didn't exist in the same way before the pandemic Yep. And I think that the microscope that epidemiology is under and the timelines that we're under is, has certainly led to some of these moves. But I, you know, it also, to me, gets to the idea that we don't have much training in scientific communication. Yes. 
And I think that's actually a problem. It is. That we don't typically suffer from because, you know, we're not normally talking to the media all that much. I don't know about you, but I talk to the media almost never before COVID. Now I, I, I have to, you know, talk to folks in the media all the time. And I'm not trained to do this very well. And I think very few of us are actually trained to do this well. We're not getting the messaging out the way that it should. Now, you could argue that there may be different reasons why in the case of the AstraZeneca, you know, they wanted to put out a higher number. But in the case of the the blood clots, I think that's really just a case of we're hearing reports of something. It's very difficult for people to interpret that information when it doesn't come from a rigorous scientific study. Specifically on that issue of, of the blood clots. So, you know, the other thing that I think you brought up earlier was this idea of risk perception has come under the microscope during COVID. You have some people who look at the the risk of getting and getting very sick from COVID as being minuscule and not worth worrying about, even though it's, we've seen very high mortality. And then you have other people who see it as, as almost if you get it, you're extremely likely to die. Based on the information that I have looked at in the meta-analyses, I ask my students what they think the probability of being infected given somebody else in your household is infected. And I, you know, I think that's sort of somewhere in the neighborhood of 20%. But when I ask my students that question, they'll often say it's in the neighborhood of of 80 to 90%. It reminds me very much of the risk of getting HIV when you're having unprotected sex with somebody who is infected. You know, most people think that's really high when in fact it's per sexual contact, it's fairly low. But we just don't, we don't know how to judge risk very well. And that seems to me to have become very apparent during the pandemic. Yes, and that is, I think, an incredibly important topic that we need to discuss more of. I think you've brought up a couple of really important things. So I'll start with the risk perception issue. There are risks associated with everything that we do. There are risks associated with dying in a car crash on the way to the vaccine appointment. There are risks, you know, you could say over and over again, there are many riskier things that you do potentially in your daily life that are riskier than getting that Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And so there's this kind of strange balance because never before have you seen so up close every individual person's risk calculus and you know we are trained to assess risk that is part of what we do as epidemiologists is assess risk from a, a quantitative perspective and you're you're making a funny face at me well i apologize sorry I, I i make faces i think you're right in the sense that we are trained to measure risk and we are trained to use that information to generate information that is useful in in trying to understand disease, either causation or description. I think that's a very different thing from being able to make decisions based on that risk information. Yes. Which I, I, you know, I would say personally, I actually think I'm I'm not very good at, despite the fact that I have training in how to measure these risks. When you tell, I can't remember where this came from, but when you tell people that that one in a hundred people who get an infection will die from it, people fall into two camps. They either assume that, well, that's a really low number, so there's zero chance I'm going to get infected, or they believe that they are going to be the one in a hundred. And I certainly, based on just my personality, I probably always am one of those people who assumes I'm the one in a hundred. Understanding risk is a very complicated thing that I think is different from measuring risk, which I think is what we do. So I agree that each individual's assessment of whether to take on an activity, that is not something that we're taught. That's an individual level characteristic. 
And, you know, we've talked about many times, you're probably more cynical or pessimistic, and I'm probably more positive or optimistic. So those are individual level characteristics. However, in the example that you just gave about the risk of contracting HIV from an individual sexual encounter being relatively low versus people perceiving that it's relatively high, you understand those differences. And so some of those differences could guide your behavior choices, not, you know, necessarily in the HIV context, but in the pandemic life context. People are deciding, can I go to a playground right now with my kids? Should I wear a mask at that playground? Is it okay because it's outside that I don't need to wear a mask? Kids don't transmit as easily or get as sick as easily. Maybe they don't need to wear a mask. These are individual level decisions that I think epidemiologists potentially think about differently than average folks in the population. Sure. And I do agree. I agree with you on that one. I will say I went to the grocery store this morning and they took away the arrows that tell you which direction you're supposed to go. And I was unhappy about that. And I thought to myself, how much increased transmission do I really think there was because people were supposedly people stopped a long time ago following the arrows, but because people were following the arrows, I suspect that made very, very little difference. But you know what? It made me feel better, even though I can understand that it probably made no identifiable difference in risk. So yeah, I, so I, I, my point is I, I agree with you, but I also think it's hard for people to judge risk. I also think the way that we look at risks around vaccines, which is what you were talking about here. So the risk of blood clotting, there have been seven cases, something like that of these rare blood clots. I, I don't remember the exact number, but there have been 6 million doses. I think it was 6.85 million. Yeah. Now you can't really use those numbers to do a simple calculation because there's a delay in the time period during which the after the dose has been administered for which people are experiencing these blood clots we don't know that they're causally linked for sure but let's say that they are you'd still have to factor in how many doses were actually administered x number of days ago so like eight days ago but still we're talking about a rare side effect but the way that people perceive risks for vaccines is very different from the risks that people might be willing to tolerate around a, a treatment for something when they've been infected with something because you're giving a vaccine to a healthy person and so they believe that they could just avoid the risk of getting COVID altogether, then you know maybe they perceive the risk of a very rare but scary event as worse than the risk of not getting vaccinated. I'm not suggesting that's a, a good calculus to make. I'm just saying I think that is the way that people perceive vaccines. Yes, absolutely. And I think a couple of things come to mind. Firstly, I would like to know the background risk of having a blood clot in a person that is within this age group. I, I understand that the blood clots are confined, I think, to kind of this middle age, 18 to 48 sort of age group. So I would like to know if you were doing really, really good population level surveillance to catch blood clots, what would the risk be? And are we just picking up on additional cases that look like it's from the vaccine, but maybe is, is just part of the background risk. So that's one thing that jumps to my mind. Yep. And the second thing is that vaccine hesitancy is a very complicated topic. And there's many different reasons why people are hesitant to take a vaccine. But one of the reasons I think is this idea that they mistrust the science and that it's all to make money for pharma. And it's not the, you know, they don't have your best interests in, at heart. It's, it's a money making scheme. And so on the one hand, 
causing this vaccine administration is a really good way of saying we are watching this very carefully. We have your best interests at heart. And as soon as we see a tiny inkling, a really, really small risk that has come up, we are saying pause and we are going to investigate this to the best of our ability, right? Because the other option would be we see this happening. It's certainly all over the news right now and saying, no, no, not not an issue. Don't worry. Just just get your vaccine. And I don't think that is in anyone's interest, even though pausing it has created a whole bunch of complicated issues. Like, is it safe? And should we be taking it, etc. So it's it strikes me as a no win situation. Yes, absolutely. If they didn't pause, then as you say, people, it would feed some of the conspiracy theories and the, and the, the vaccine hesitancy that's out there. But by pausing, I think it's doing some of that work as well, because I think there are going to be people who say that's the that's the vaccine that they put a pause on. I'm not getting that one. I don't care. I'd rather get nothing than get that one. And nobody knows what the trade-off is there. Which one would be better? Would it be better to have just kept moving or would it have been better to put the pause on and, and investigate? And it just strikes me as a no-win situation. It's a terrible decision to have to make. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a terrible decision to have to make. But as you just said, when we're talking about vaccines, you have to err on the side of being super ultra cautious. And so if you let this go for another two months and it ends up there is a real risk of these blood clots and you know it shouldn't be administered to a particular group I don't think that is going to be the case but if that were to happen then people would say you knew about this two months ago this would this is a huge issue that you could have stopped these deaths from happening and you know that I think is the worst outcome in my mind long term than taking this pause right now but you never know the counterfactual that's that you know we never would know what would have happened if you didn't pause it right now although it certainly has created a big problem Yep, I agree. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is confirmation bias, which I think we have seen a massive amount of of confirmation bias over the course of this pandemic, where there have been various theories floated on, you know, things that that will work to prevent, to treat COVID, theories around whether or not to open schools is a is I suppose is a, an opinion and a policy decision, but whether or not it's safe to open schools, meaning do kids actually transmit and get infected at reasonably high rates such that it's it's risky. And it just strikes me as what we've seen is situations where people who should know better, who, who should have the training to be able to recognize it, are not able to change their mind. And, you know, my belief is that much of this comes from the fact that even if you go into science with the best of intention, once you decide that something is a good idea or a bad idea or whatever it is, and you say that publicly, you put it out in the media, especially again, you know, where the stakes are really high right now. So you start advocating that the data tell us that it's safe to open schools or the data tell us that this particular treatment is highly effective or the reverse, by the way. I mean, data tells us that it's not safe to open schools or data tell us that this treatment is not effective, whatever it is. I'm not picking sides here. But once you come out and start to argue for that based on the data, it's very hard to see new data being effective at changing your position on that. You know, I will just say that I... 
I certainly know that I have been an advocate over the course of the pandemic for things like social distancing and, and masking. And I, I believe that was the right thing to do. And I think that is what I should be advocating for. But I, I do admit that it would make it, it would certainly make it harder to see if there was good solid evidence that were to suggest that those things didn't work as well as we thought or were not particularly helpful. I don't know how I would react to that. Thankfully, we, we haven't been in that position. So I haven't had to confront that. But I, I, I am aware that confirmation bias is, is often very difficult to see in ourselves. Absolutely. And I think firstly, recognizing that confirmation bias is a thing that you have to contend with on an individual level, but also recognizing that this is science at warp speed. This is science at a level that is coming out faster. The science is changing and it's really, it's actually quite hard to keep up with it all. And so understanding that fact, I very clearly remember it was March of last year. Everything was just sort of starting to unravel. And I I'm in New York State and so New York City was very very bad and the CDC came out and said you don't need to wait excuse me I don't know if it was CDC I maybe it was Dr. Fauci they came out and said average folks don't need to wear masks or something to that effect we don't have enough PPE for our healthcare workers don't take their PPE you will be fine And I remember going into the grocery store and seeing people wearing masks and thinking to myself, those selfish people, how could they be wearing masks right now? And these are, you know, surgical looking masks, but they weren't kind of the fashionable masks that we have now with the fabrics and all that. And I remember thinking, I cannot believe these people are A, not listening to the recommendations of our public health officials, but B, being so selfish to wear a mask at the grocery store when there's not enough for hospital workers. And, you know, that was the science at the time. I don't know any better than what was being put out. And so I had to change my mind when the recommendations changed my tune. You know, I wear a mask everywhere right now. And so I think that there is some level of being open to new ideas as they come out. Yeah, I think the example you're getting at there is probably an example of both poor scientific communication, because I think the real message at that point should have been, we don't know whether or not masks are going to be effective and useful for everyone, but we don't have evidence of that right now, and we do have a shortage, so we need to save them for the healthcare workers so that there was more room to come back to masks at a later point, because we we, we truly didn't know at that point. But that's such a nuanced concept, you know, that we don't know... We have a shortage, so don't wear them. That's that's not a very clear message to be relaying to the public. Again, maybe it's it was a no-win situation at the time, you know, similar to this vaccine decision that we're we're faced with, that they were faced with with this pause. Because certainly if you had said everyone wear a mask all the time, this is really transmissible, or we don't know, so wear your mask, either of those could have been messages. The other option that they went with was don't wear a mask because we don't think it transmits that way. So it, it feels no win to those folks who had to make that decision. Agreed. So I, I would agree with you. I think that's a case where we didn't message it well, probably partly because we didn't, you know, we didn't really know exactly what it was we were trying to say. But I, I do agree with your point that that is a case where we did change our minds and we were open to that. So so that would be a case where I think confirmation bias didn't dominate. But where I see confirmation bias coming in is when people go from 
I've done research on this and my, re you know, our research or the, you know, what the body of research shows this. Therefore, this is what you should do. Then it becomes very hard to, to change your mind. So if you say, you know, we did all this work that shows that masks don't work. then And so you say, and therefore nobody should be wearing masks. Then more evidence comes out that actually shows masks do work. Now you've committed to the research and the message. And then I think it becomes hard to say you were wrong. The easier thing often seems to be due to, to do at that point is to double down and say no it's the other research that's wrong and and you know maybe in some cases that's true but i think in most cases there becomes a clear consensus but there are certain people who resist that consensus because confirmation bias can be so dominated at least that's my perception yeah i, I guess once you have come out and and staked a claim certainly walking back from that claim is is very challenging and it is important for everyone to be open to challenging themselves, even even if it means a bit of a hit to the ego, if the science is changing, right? And so we've seen tons of examples of this in the history of public health. You know, when you think about the fact that people used to smoke on airplanes, you know, that is wild to think about now. The worst smell you get on an airplane is your stinky feet right now, right? If we could ever go on airplanes. <laughs> It's not mine. It's not my feet. I promise you. Oh, sure, sure. An anonymous person's stinky feet who's in socks on the airplane, right? And so it's just happening at such an accelerated rate now that it makes it harder to assess. And so I think that five, ten years down the road, we're going to look back at this period with a very different lens than each of us has had the advantage of having as we have lived through this. And so I think that as we've talked about today, there are some issues that have come up over the past year that we have had to change our tune over the course of the past year. And we should each be open to the science evolving as we move forward, hopefully with a return to to a, a normal kind of society that we're used to. Let's hope, let's hope that comes soon. Yes, let's hope. But even when that day comes, let's hope we can all still wear t-shirts and sweatpants full time, even when working. Oh, absolutely. You can't turn that back. I hope not. I was actually, you know, sitting at my computer the other day thinking, okay, I'm gonna, you know, start going back into the office a couple days a week. I'm gonna need to put on some actual work blouses, but I'd like to figure out what kind of fancy leggings I could wear. So they're stretchy, but they look like work pants. And I almost posed a question on Academic Mom's Facebook group. Does anyone know of fancy leggings that I can wear that would fool people into thinking I'm wearing work pants? Because I don't think actual sweatpants would fly at the office. If they don't exist, that that is a perfect business opportunity. All right. If this whole career doesn't work out, I know what I'm I'm pivoting to. Perfect. All right. So thank you for joining us for this um, last episode of our inaugural season of Serious Epidemiology. I have had a ton of fun recording this. Uh, I've learned a huge amount from the guests that we have had on this season. I've learned a huge amount co-hosting it with you, Matt. And I look forward to our upcoming season uh, where we have some really great things planned. 
It's been a blast. We have something really big planned for next season. I wanted to tell you all about it, but Haley said it's a big secret and I'm not allowed to tell you, so you can blame her for for not giving the teaser, but um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'll take that. All right. So we want to thank everyone for listening. If you are not already a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, we strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee to the annual meeting, and the SER website also has some amazing learning opportunities and playlists and videos from previous year's conferences that are really fantastic. We also want to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll really like that one. So go ahead, check it out. And I would normally tell you to download our next episode and and get ready, but we're going to be off for a little bit, but we are looking forward to coming back strong with our, our season two. So look out for it. Bye, Haley. Bye, Matt.